Now, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. That's what Winston Churchill said in autumn 1942, a little over three years into the Second World War. The Allies had just won a major victory against the Germans after the Battle of Alamein, and people were beginning to say, we've got the Germans on the run. And yet Churchill had to manage their expectations. No, we're not there yet. Maybe you've had to manage expectations, whether that's as a teacher, a parent, at work, with the client or those you manage. Well, here in this passage, Jesus appears to be doing something similar in responding to his disciples. You see, previously in this narrative before chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus has just had a bit of a showdown with the religious leaders of his day within the nation's chief place of worship, the temple. And that temple was considered a stunning structure made with huge limestones that most likely blinded in appearance when the sun hit it. A building beautiful, impressive and awe-inspiring. So having left the temple after this confrontation, Jesus and his disciples are sitting on the Mount of Olives. And his disciples direct Jesus' gaze on these amazing temple buildings. And they get a response from him they probably weren't expecting in verse 2. This great structure they're seeing before them, which was considered almost untouchable and permanent, Jesus says is going to be flattened. And it did. In 70 AD, the Romans destroyed it, and this juggernaut of a structure was pretty much brought to the ground. I mentioned that Jesus previously just had a bit of a showdown with the religious leaders in chapter 23. And he uses some really strong, scathing words to them. I mean strong, go read it. He rebukes them and calls them out on their hypocrisy and pronounces judgment on Jerusalem, taking no pleasure in doing it. In fact, he laments. He then leaves the temple with his disciples. And this symbolized God abandoning it because the relationship between God and his people was now broken. And so finally, Jesus reveals to his disciples that the temple will be completely destroyed as part of this judgment. And now in this narrative, the minds of the disciples in verse 3 go from one of awe-inspiring achievement of what human hands can do to the apocalypse. Why? Because for the Jews... The temple represented permanency. It was almost considered indestructible, unshakable. And if it did go, it would be considered the end. That if God's house was going to be removed, then it must mean to the disciples that God, through his Messiah Jesus, was going to usher in the new kingdom and the world as they know it would end. Uh, An obvious theme in this chapter is the whole idea of the apocalypse, the end of the world. 
And if you read on in the text to the end of the chapter, it becomes more and more of a focus. Um, a helpful way of looking at the descriptions of the end of the world in the Bible is to think of them a little like movie trailers. You, you get enough of a gist of what the movie is about from the trailer. Certain things are being shown to you, but it's not necessarily chronological. Scenes are shown, but it's not clear how they fit into the big picture. And maybe you see a follow-up release trailer where it's longer or certain scenes are given more attention. Well, in the Bible, we see in both the Old and New Testament visions of what will happen. Some verses spend more time showing a certain picture than others. And many Christians have predicted, and still do, exactly how it's going to happen and when. Christians teach different perspectives, and not everyone is in agreement. Christians throughout the centuries have always believed that the end might be imminent for that generation. And in one sense, it's right to have that kind of expectation, but we don't know when. Verse 3 in the text reveals that the disciples connected the destruction of the temple, God's new kingdom, and the end of the world all together. It says, tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's understood that there was an expectation of imminence by the disciples, that once the temple is destroyed, everything else would happen at once. And yet Jesus, in the next few verses, just like Churchill, manages their expectations. Not by directly answering their question, certainly not at first, but instead does something far more helpful and practical. He prepares and equips them for what's to come. And he does the same for us. Jesus responds to their question with a warning. And in the next nine verses, like a movie trailer, we see a glimpse of both the future for the disciples and for ourselves. He gives a warning, but also a reassurance. Just like you get road signs forewarning you of what's ahead, Jesus also forewarns of a period of global trouble, of persecution and of great deception. Watch out, then, is his response. Have a look at verse 4. Well, we know from historical accounts that shortly after Jesus left, there were people who claimed to be Jesus or the Messiah returning in some form. Global catastrophes of famines, earthquakes and wars between nations did happen during the disciples' lifespan. The church was persecuted and the gospel was preached to the known world. In one sense, you can see why this was a type of end, an end to what the Jews knew of God's plan. The destruction of the temple will mean salvation is no longer confined to the old way of doing things. But that salvation will now burst out from Israel to the rest of the known world. But just like Churchill, Jesus says, this is not yet the end. He refers to this period of the world as going through birth pains. And 
we're still in the period of the birth pains. When you watch the news of the horrors around the world, political instabilities, COVID-19, these global troubles should not be considered the end of all things or the end times necessarily. But they are signs that point to an end that is coming. Now, I personally can't relate to birth pains, but commentator Michael J. Wilkins puts it like this. The onset of childbirth is not steady, but is a repeated phenomenon coming in waves over and over again. We do not know if the baby will come on the 5th, the 15th, the 50th, or the 500th. Throughout the labour, we must remain on guard, but we should not read the false labour as the real thing. Jesus is for arming us by forewarning us when he says, don't be alarmed. Now, there are many troubles to focus on here in the text, but I just want to zoom in on one thing. Notice the repeated word many in the text. Many will come in my name. Many will turn away. Many false prophets deceive many people. A clear chilling picture that I referred to earlier that's being presented to us here is one of great deception and falling away, especially within the church. Uh, Yes, this happened historically for the disciples, but we're not off the hook today. This is just as a relevant warning for us here in all souls laying in place as well, or wherever you are. There's a huge temptation to believe that if you do the right stuff, regularly go to church, prayer gathering, go to a small group Bible study, that things will just work out for you. Now, now please don't get me wrong. They are right things to do, but the belief of just doing them in and of themselves don't protect you from falling away, from leaving the Christian faith, if you consider yourself a Christian. It's not helpful to think that because someone can remember the moment they became a Christian, or the friend you knew who became a Christian when they were seven years old, or or the conference they went to 20 years ago where they gave their life to the Lord, that that is all the certainty you need, regardless of how you're living. Now, I, I believe from the text in verse 13, the more important question to ask is, how are you living now? Are you faithful and standing firm within the current circumstances that the Lord has you in today? People leave all souls not because they're more attracted to Mormonism uh, or the doctrines presented by Jehovah Witnesses. They leave the church because living for Jesus might mean being alone. It might mean not living the lifestyle that they want. It might mean not having the relationship that they want, resulting in them finding the many false teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. So so I need to ask myself the question, am I tempted by another gospel? What actually is my doctrine and do I believe it? There is a warning against false teaching that the text says many will be deceived by and many will turn away and betray and hate each other. 
And Jesus is saying, in order to be saved, you will need to endure through all this global trouble, persecution, and very real deception. But Jesus doesn't leave his disciples or us there. Yes, endure, but he does give reassurance. There is relief. Have a look at verse 14. Jesus indicates that despite all of the difficulties that will happen, there is an end point. Jesus says that his plan will succeed. He reassures his disciples and us that although we must endure, whatever happens, he will bring his ultimate plan to being. It's clear from the text that from the point of Jesus leaving and coming back to earth, the advancement of the gospel is a priority and it will be advanced. If we consider ourselves a part of his church, then the gospel of the kingdom, going to all the nations, needs to be a priority for us as well. The Bible tells us that God's plan and mission in verse 14 is the building up of his church. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations. Those who are his will hear the message and believe. Spurgeon said, the world is to the church like a scaffold to a building. When the church is built, the scaffold will be taken down. The world must remain until the last elect one is saved. Just like the destruction of the temple represented a judgment on Israel, as well as signifying God's salvation to the rest of the world, so will it be again that when the scaffolding of the earth is brought down this time, the world will be judged and the true church will receive its salvation. Do you feel your own discipleship efforts are pointless? Whether that's leading a fellowship group, uh, efforts in evangelism, opportunities to share your faith. And maybe the months of COVID has just tested you and your ministry to the edge. If so, believe it or not, Jesus' kingdom will succeed. But before that, in the meantime, the church will go through a battering. And the message from Jesus here is that we need to endure. If there have been very clear lessons that we've learned in the last 12 months of COVID lockdown, one of them is that things we know are temporary. London's monuments are temporary. The United Kingdom is temporary. Our way of life is temporary. That glorious temple building that the disciples were admiring was temporary. In the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, Jesus refers to himself as a temple. A temple that will be destroyed and raised up again in three days. What does he mean by that? Well, he's referring to his own death and resurrection. And it's in his death we see God's glory more than any great white stone temple could ever express. On the cross, we see God's glory in its fullest sense being displayed. God is righteous. 
So evil has to be judged and stopped. But God is also merciful and loving. And so we see simultaneously God's judgment and mercy meet together. When Christ, who was perfect, died on the cross, he took on all our wickedness and we were given his perfection. Three days later, he rose from the dead and stands alive now. Jesus is the temple which is permanent. There is a sense that the disciples and those in Israel were looking at the wrong thing for permanence. A great, impressive, white-stoned structure. And it's easy for us to do the same thing as well. You see, the Jews almost saw the temple as their strength, their confidence, not God. It was idolatry. Do you have your own impressive white stone structure that you gaze at as permanent? How do we truly endure through troubles in the way it matters most? It's only in the strength that God gives us by his Holy Spirit. Looking at what is truly permanent. And that's Jesus. His endurance on the cross for us, marveling not at any kind of impressive great bright white stone structure, but marveling at what he's done for us because of his love for us.